Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. I promised to get to a few other topics in the last episode of OTB, and I believe I have generally made good on my promises. But I have one topic, that is, that is going to jump the line because it deals with so many issues that I've been thinking about lately. Issues that have been receiving a certain degree of attention in the sports world as well. And that is the battle we're seeing among NBA players, past and present, about who faced the stiffer competition, or who was simply better. Man, you talk about petty and insulting, both to athletes of previous eras, as well as, well, plumbers and firemen. I'll explain. Uh, But there are actually a lot of layers to what was said and why, which is why I'm motivated to dedicate an entire podcast to it. I'm referring, of course, to J.J. Redick suggesting that the players that Bob Cousy played against, the reason that Bob Cousy was as great as he was, the reason that he couldn't be or shouldn't be compared to Chris Paul as an all-time great point guard is in part because of the competition he played against. He played against plumbers and firemen. Now, before we get into all that, just consider this for a minute. Do we ever hear today's comedic actors rip on Charlie Chaplin or Richard Pryor as not deserving to be among the all-time greats because... They didn't have the same technology that we have today. Charlie Chaplin didn't even speak. Do we ever hear Denzel Washington suggesting Sidney Poitier wasn't all that because Sidney didn't appear or uh, act in the same range of movies that Denzel has? Do we get Elon Musk laughing at Henry Ford? Is Stevie Wonder cracking on Ray Charles or Smokey Robinson? Is Beyonce sneering at Etta James? You get what I'm saying. 
why in every other pursuit, particularly when it comes to entertainment and its variety, it, its various ways, do we not get today's actors, musicians, singers, businessmen mocking or downgrading their predecessors? So why do we have today's NBA players doing exactly that? running down their predecessors because what they did and how they did it is different than in what is happening today. And, and this is not a new debate by any stretch, even among players and certainly not among fans and media. The reason it's received so much attention is that J.J. Redick, a former player, now part of the media via ESPN, suggested that Bob Cousy was not all that great because he played against plumbers and firemen on ESPN, a broadcast partner of the NBA. And just so you know, my colleagues on Speak for Yourself, Marcellus Wiley and Emmanuel Acho, both former NFL players, co-signed the idea that athletes from the 50s and 60s, maybe even 70s, can't compare to today's athletes. In fact, Marcellus has suggested that Michael Jordan was playing against competition significantly beneath what LeBron has faced. I believe he's even used the reference of played against plumbers and firemen by way of suggesting that LeBron deserves to stand higher on the all-time list. And we haven't made it an outright topic on the show, surprisingly, but we have discussed it briefly off-air between segments. Warriors forward Draymond Green suggested something similar when he said, offhandedly, that he was watching a replay of the 1998 finals between the Bulls and Utah Jazz and is convinced his 2017 Warriors team not only would have beaten the Bulls, but they would have done it by a dub, which I took to mean by 20. He said they'd beat the Jazz by 40. I don't know if he received backlash. He tweeted this, by the way. I don't know if he received backlash, sobered up, or simply had time to reflect, but he then... I believe it was almost in the same tweet, took issue with fans for comparing teams and players from different eras, said that it was stupid, even though that's essentially what he did. And not only did he do it, but he passed judgment. Yeah, don't do it. Don't compare eras. But if you do, just know that our era is the best era. (laughs) Now, I can't speak to what the game was like in the 50s and 60s at all. I know some of the conditions uh, because I've talked to those who have played in that era and it was right at the beginning of my life, so uh, not the 50s, but the 60s. So I kind of know what the world was like a little bit tangentially, and I, I, but I wouldn't call myself an expert. I can't speak to the 50s and 60s and the NBA and at that time. And I wouldn't even call myself an expert on the 70s and 80s. I was nothing more than a kid or teenager and strictly a fan. I started covering the league as a job in the 90s. And while I can't tell you I know firsthand what the games and competition were like when Koozie and Oscar Robertson and Jerry West played, I have covered the league up close long enough to know how dramatically the game has changed over the 30 years that I've covered it, that I have become an expert on it. And I have to assume it went through a similar transformation 
over those first 30 years. The changes I've witnessed in my 30 years are massive to the point that I could make the case it's an entirely different league or a multitude of different leagues. The only thing that hasn't changed are the dimensions of the court. Even the ball has changed one time or another. Rules, media, eligibility, strategy, sports medicine, coaching, contracts, collective bargaining agreement, all of it. I could list a hundred different aspects. All of it transform, has, has been transformed several times over. But you know what hasn't changed? How hard it is to be the best at any one time. To be the best of a given era. What teams believed a player needed to be great has changed as much as anything. Yeah, players kind of look the same now as they did in the 80s. Maybe less so in the 60s. But still, long, athletic, taller rather than short, skinnier rather than stocky. But within those parameters, there's been a lot of change. And certain players, while there are certain players that would have been coveted in any era, that's a very small number. And this debate really has to do, and that's where we need to be clear, this debate really has to do with the rank and file, the median player in the league at any given time. It's not about the Bob Cousy's or the Jerry West's or the Oscar Robertson's or the LeBron's or the Michael Jordan's. It is about the J.J. Reddick's. Now, there are a few oblivious fans and media who mock Bill Russell strictly off of looking at a few statistics as not being worthy of all-time great consideration. They don't get a seat at the table for this conversation. So let's start here. The difference in eras begins with the physical attributes that a team, the teams coveted. When anyone today suggests that a healthy number of players from 30 years ago couldn't play in today's game, they're right, especially when it comes to certain positions. The game today is about speed and agility. There are a few leftovers, like P.J. Tucker's the first one that comes to mind, a stocky guy who understands how to play angles and disguise force, you know, use of force and leverage along with sort of the cat and mouse game of giving and taking away space to make an offensive player unsure and uncomfortable, willing to devote himself to those aspects of the game. There's still a little bit of room for a P.J. Tucker. It's going away. Uh, Not being a definitive offensive threat, we're at a point now in the game where every player on the floor has to be that. That wasn't always the case. And no, that doesn't mean that the game was easier or more advantageous back then. But we'll get to that. For the most part, today's players are far more wiry and agile because the game is far more about speed and change in direction than brute strength. It's the way the game is officiated. It's the way strategies are built. All of that. And teams have drafted and signed talent accordingly. Players today are also significantly shorter. The average height of players was 6'6 last season, and that's the lowest it's been in more than 40 years. 
The one exception are point guards who are collectively taller than the league has ever seen, which suggests that the positionless game is on its way. Pat Riley's vision of five guys, all 6'9", who can shoot, handle, and pass is not that far away. And Pat first expressed that vision some 20 years ago, at least, if not 30. I remember hearing it not long after I started covering the league. He had a vision of, of basically five guys, interchangeable, can play all positions, and can do everything. But the transition to that is still happening. And who knows? Another shift in how the game is officiated could disrupt that. Overall height isn't all that has shrunk. The average weight of players is the lowest it has been in more than 20 years. I don't think you need measurements to know that. Just watching a game makes it clear how much the players have changed physically. Which is why, in the same way players 30 years ago wouldn't be on today's draft boards... Neither would today's players, again, talking about the median, today's median players 30 years ago. A player had to be built for the physicality of the game in the 90s or have the framework to develop it. They also had to have the basketball experience and IQ in order to play at that time. You weren't going to get away with athleticism. The difference in who would be drafted today versus 30 years ago isn't blatantly obvious and largely because a lot of it is intrinsic. Their knowledge and understanding of the game. When I first started covering the league in 1992, I can't think of too many players who didn't need a year or more in the weight room to make the adjustment to the pro game. It was automatic. Any player who came in the thought was they need a year or two of seasoning, of steady weight work, of changing their body to prepare to be an NBA player, to survive, just to be able to compete. It was standard procedure. The summer after their rookie season, every player added 10 to 15 pounds of muscle. Even JJ, drafted in 2006, had to go through that transformation. He was listed as 6'5 and 190 pounds coming out of Duke, and he shape-shifted into 6'3 and 200 pounds, at least according to basketball reference, before he retired last year. I guarantee you, not long after he came into the league, he weighed more than 200 pounds. I would not be surprised he got up to 205, maybe even 210. I don't know how he lost two inches, although it was also pretty standard that everyone measured in their shoes, and they could measure in their shoes standing on their tiptoes, there were ways where heights were heights in particular were inflated. Uh, so I would imagine his weight went higher at one point, and then as the game sped up and slimmed down, so did he. So let's just take the first ten picks of the draft in 2002 versus the year this year's for comparison. That's a 20-year difference. 20 years ago, regardless of height, 8 of the 10 picks weighed 220 pounds or more. This year, only half of the 10, the first 10. And they include Ozmane Diang at 6'10 and 205 and Chet Holmgren at 7 feet and 195. The skinniest top 10 pick in 2002 was Nicholas 
uh, Skidishvili at seven feet and 220 pounds, basically 25 pounds heavier than Chet Holmgren. Now, players today spend a considerable amount of time in the weight room, but it's a different kind of weight training from what I understand, intended to develop their bodies in a different way with a different sort of strength. It's a wiry strength with durability over adding muscle to withstand bumping and grinding in the post. Another subtle wrinkle. When I started covering the league, guys would lift before games or on off days. They'd try to add as much muscle as they could during the off season and then try to maintain as much of it as they could through the grind of the season. Now the theory is that weightlifting should be done after the game, like immediately after the game, for players while they're still warmed up and pliable from having just played. I just watched this with uh, some of the players on the Utah Jazz, no, excuse me, Memphis Grizzlies Summer League team. Uh, Had to wait to talk to a couple of them because they were immediately taken into a room with a trainer and put through some, uh, some weight work, stretching and weight work. I believe the theory is to do some strength training without having it take away from doing other work the next day. It's also weight training meant to increase players' strength and range of motion more so than just to add mass. Now, having seen philosophies change dramatically over the years, I'm not sure how much stock to put into what is being done today. A month from now, six months from now, a year from now, I wouldn't be surprised if someone decided that lifting during the game or at halftime is more conducive. There's a lot of salesmanship that goes into training methods, and everybody's always looking for the next new thing. And I'm not saying that the changes aren't founded on new discoveries about body mechanics and medicine and aren't sound. I'm just saying that introducing a new routine or a new device creates the aura of advancement or training evolution. I don't know if that's always the case. In any case, it's not new. I'm going to guess that part of the premise that the league once had plumbers and firemen playing in it is that there was a time when players often had to have a second job in the offseason to amplify their playing salary, and that that is used as a way of suggesting that they weren't the complete professionals that today's players are. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, and... I will say, plumbers and firemen, I don't know too many guys who did that. Though jobs that guys did hold during the offseason were rarely full-blown second professions. They might have a real estate license, or they sold cars, or men's suits, or insurance, or they ran a sporting goods store, or basketball camps. They weren't doctors and lawyers and firemen and plumbers, professions that require years of practice and study to be any good at them. 
Also really not a great model to be a plumber who only works during the summer. I mean, I suppose you could do it for a little bit of extra cash. A fireman? Yeah, I don't know that that would necessarily work. Maybe today, in today's world, since we're, we're dealing with so many fires, but and I know there's a shortage of firemen, but we're talking about 50 years ago. Probably not. Now, did all of that make them less professional than today's players? My sense is that most people jump to that conclusion. I don't. Do we look at Olympic athletes as being less than elite just because some of them have to hold down a job of some kind beyond their athletic pursuits? It's now acceptable for Olympic athletes not to be amateurs, and there's been a way around Olympians making money as athletes and still being eligible to compete for years. But there remain a ton of them, and there's always been a ton of them, extremely elite the best athletes in the world and swimmers come immediately to mind who aren't full-blown millionaires but teachers and cab drivers and farmers and they still manage to be among the world's elite physical specimens. They are as much proof as you need that an athlete's ability is governed by A. Genetics and B. The willingness to do whatever is necessary to maximize those genetically God-given gifts. Being a plumber or a fireman wouldn't preclude anyone back in the day from being a great athlete. So let's get that straight. What muddies the conversation about today's players versus those in Kuzi's era, at least the most recent conversation, is because it's become an argument between someone like Bob Kuzi or Jerry West, an all-time great, who would have been great in any era, NJJ or Draymond, who would not have been. It's not so much who is arguing as what those arguments consist of. I winced at Jerry blasting JJ for essentially being a journeyman, as if his view of the game is undermined by the fact that he wasn't a superstar. Even Kuzi suggested that JJ said what he said only because he wasn't an accomplished player and was seeking attention. I don't think that's why J.J. said what he said. I believe his argument is that the average player in the NBA, the players that Jerry and Kuzi were dominating, are better today than they were back then. Jerry and Kuzi trotting out the names of the other superstars of their era and facetiously calling them plumbers and firemen doesn't address J.J.'s argument. In fact, J.J.'s relative mediocrity actually is a better vantage point for what he's talking about. He's saying if the average player in Kuzi's day was of JJ's caliber, Kuzi would have had less success than he did. Now, I'm sure most people watching clips of 40 and 50 years ago versus today consider it ludicrous that anyone would ever suggest those players and that game measures up to today's game. And that's not the case that I'm making. The average shooting range, the average ball handling skills, even the average speed, I would guess, is greater today than it was then. The reason is pretty simple. The money that can be made by an average NBA player like J.J. Redick is life-changing. And because it is, there are people that are willing to invest in the training that allows a player like Redick to spend as much time as he wants on honing those skills, let alone Redick being willing to spend as much time as he can honing those skills because the payoff is enormous. 
If you show that you have the requisite physical ability to play at the professional level, then by all means, you can go from making a couple hundred thousand to making millions if you can just maximize what you have. That wasn't the case for the average player in Kuzi's day. The motivation and the resources weren't nearly the same. They were the best they could be with what they had. But does all of that mean it was easier for guys like Kuzi to dominate the way he did? To notch eight assist titles in 12 full seasons? An argument could be made that the opposite is true, especially for someone like Kuzi, who was a playmaker. The Celtics rarely, if ever, had a shooter in the league's top 10 in field goal percentage. I constantly hear that LeBron would have way more assists if he had better shooting teammates. If Kuzi was playing against plumbers and firemen, it stands to reason he was playing with players inferior to today's players as well, right? So how did he manage to win all those titles? Six in 12 seasons. And I can't help, I know you've the immediate, well, the Celtics had all these Hall of Famers. They had Hall of Famers because they collectively won all those titles. Not because they were individually far and away the best players in that era. Now, I don't know that for a fact, not having seen them play. But Draymond Green, as an example of today's game, will be a Hall of Famer deservedly based on who is already in the hall. But if he weren't part of the Warriors' nucleus, if he didn't have four rings, would he get there on his own? Was he, If he was Draymond Green on the Minnesota Timberwolves or the Charlotte Hornets, would he, would he be a, a lock for the Hall of Fame? I don't think so. The same could be said for Klay Thompson as great a shooter as he's proved to be. If he's that great shooter on another team, on a team that hasn't won four titles, that hasn't been to the finals six times, is he still looked at in the same vein? I believe the Boston Celtics have benefited from the same, the same view. The worst part of J.J. and Draymond bashing the players that came before them is that they enjoy a life and a league built on what their predecessors did without the same comforts and conveniences. Jerry West acknowledged it. He said, we didn't, we didn't have the facilities that they have today. We didn't have the conveniences. We didn't have the advantages. He's not saying that yesterday's game was better. He's saying we did the best that we absolutely could we beat who was in front of us and to suggest that somehow we were inferior because the circumstances surrounding the game were inferior is insulting to what they accomplished. However true it may be, what's the point? Was Charlie Chaplin, again, going back to that example, because he worked in silent movies, can you not appreciate the artistry and the excellence and what it took for him to be great and what it served as a building block to what we now get to enjoy when it comes to comedy and movies. And let's not forget, today's players, 
They have charter flights and private chefs and entire medical staffs at their disposal. They have the latest equipment and basketball courts available 24-7. Players back in the day not only traveled commercial, they flew coach. They didn't have their own facilities. They didn't have nutritionists. And they sure as hell didn't have the medical care that today's players have. Dennis Scott played from 1991 to 2000. That's relatively recent, considering the time span that we're talking about here. When I asked him just during the finals what one thing he wished he'd had that today's players have, he said without hesitation, the doctors that Clay Thompson had. He's convinced if he did, if he'd had that treatment, if they'd had that understanding, that sort of surgical ability, he could have played another five years at least, and the nine years he did play would have been a lot more productive. I've had other ex-NBA players say something similar. There are players from previous eras who have grumbled about the game being softer today when they've played. They've talked about how it's different today. And there's a little bit of grousing about the amount of money that guys are making today playing a softer game. But I've generally heard all of that when the old timers have what they accomplished or their statistics discounted. I don't think they unilaterally volunteer that criticism of today's game. And let's face it, it's a legitimate complaint as I see it. The game is not as physical. The accommodation, the, the, the comforts and the conveniences and everything that is provided for a player today, it is miles ahead of what players had back in the day. And I've never known the old timers to call out players by name uh, or to name specific teams. I've never heard them look at a championship team in today's game and suggest that they were undeserving or inferior. Now, J.J. and Draymond did. They took shots that didn't need to be taken. Kuzi played against the best competition the NBA could provide him. He played with teams that were built to beat the competition they faced. He developed the skills he needed in order to be great. And he was, time after time. Same goes for the 2018 Bulls or any other championship team from their era. And just for the record, I'm not taking anybody over a Bulls team in the 90s led by Michael Jordan. If you saw him up close as I did, night after night, you'd understand. And I dare say there are some old-time writers who saw Bob Cousy and Will Chamberlain play and know what those 60s and 70s stars were all about and will defend them to the hilt as I would Michael Jordan. If you saw him up close as I did, night after night, in a variety of situations, you'd understand. There isn't anyone. Kobe Bryant included, that was as relentless and cutthroat on a nightly basis as he was. And in the playoffs, he took it up another level. He didn't always win, but he always evoked fear, outright fear and respect. Watching LeBron look helpless against the Spurs and completely fall apart against the Dallas Mavericks ended the debate for me as to who was better. Even in Jordan's days losing to the Detroit Pistons, he never went down without a fight. 
You literally had to knock him down to knock him out. Now, maybe that doesn't account that doesn't doesn't count for something with some people, but it does for me. Jordan had to learn the formula to winning it all, to trusting his teammates, to focusing his energy at the right time in the right way, as so many players have had to do. But once he did, once he figured that out, he never finished second again. Now, the game was different then. For anybody who enjoys today's game more, I have no problem with that. The rules are different, though. That has to be acknowledged. Players today have been, aside from the difference in physicality, today's players have been granted a full extra step once they pick up their dribble. The NBA has never said that outright, but as somebody who's watched for the last 30 years, traveling is called differently today than it was then. There are no illegal defense rules which actually force teams to play slower to try to exploit them. And when it comes to the travel issue, were there sliding pivot feet? Yes. On the on the perimeter, there were referees who watched it and was like, did this travel, this technically a travel, did it gain an advantage? And if it didn't, they let it go. But, when it came, came to driving and taking an extra step, you weren't getting that. You weren't getting that to the level that you are today. It has been literally uh, written into the game in the way that the travel call uh, is, or travel rule is described. We've added the gather. <laughs> the gather and then two steps. So it's essentially three steps now. Now, Players didn't shoot threes back in the day because offenses weren't built to shoot them. It wasn't considered a, uh, a high percentage shot. I can't tell you how many players today who couldn't shoot threes when they entered the league have learned to shoot them efficiently. So are you trying to tell me that, never mind Michael Jordan, any number of play, yesteryear's pros, they couldn't have developed a three-point shot? Come on. It's, stop it. You give them same training, same opportunity, that players have today, they would have developed a three-point shot. Everybody would have been shooting shooting threes. It's not like it's not as if players today they're able to hone their bodies to a higher level than players did back in the day. Training is different. The approach is different. The selection of athletes is different. They're also younger coming into the league. But to suggest that if you took the players back. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that they couldn't be developed the same way if they were given all of the same things is a suggestion that now we're all superhuman. That the average person out there is more physically gifted than the average person 34 years ago. I would say it might be the opposite, at least when it comes to Americans. I don't know that for a fact, but the obesity numbers suggest otherwise. So this idea that like yesteryear's pros couldn't have done the same in terms of developing three-point shots, that they were physically inferior to today, to, to Al Horford or Brooke Lopez or, or even Clay Thompson. And I'm not picking on those guys. They are all great. They've all honed their skills and their bodies to the best of their abilities. But so did every previous generation. Now, this is, there's a personal angle to this for me. Because both of my kids are now college athletes, as I was. I bought books 
in my day in order to get better. I bought books with illustrations, playing soccer, illustrations of drills that English premier teams used. I collected a stack of traffic cones and dribbled in and out of them for hours in my driveway. I I shoveled snow off the artificial turf uh, at the University of Cincinnati's Nippert Stadium. I ran hills. I studied whatever film I could get my eyes on. Soccer Made in Germany was an hourly highlight show that I watched religiously. It was basically the only international soccer you could see on a regular basis. My kids, on the other hand, are watching YouTube tutorials on every highlight from around the world. My daughter worked with Rockets assistant coach John Lucas this past summer for two weeks. She was working out three times a day. I never experienced any of that. Not even in college. My son goes to a football-specific training center with devices and routines that didn't exist when I was coming up. Their respective high school weight programs and facilities were as good as what I had in college. And what they have in college is better than anything I ever had. And I went to a Division I school. The equipment is better. And so they are better athletes than I was, or they certainly soon will be. But if you gave me what they have, would they have been better? Will they have better careers? Maybe. But you will never convince me that if I had what they had, I wouldn't have taken advantage of it the same way they have. And that is where Bob Cousy and Jerry West take exception to what is being suggested that either the people they played against weren't as good because they just weren't as good or that they don't compare to today's greats it's a sliding scale every bit of it now is competition fiercer today money and technology have globalized the search for talent if a kid shows signs of having nba level athleticism and size He's going to be on someone's radar. Does that greater reach for talent compensate for the vast increase in teams? There were eight teams in the NBA in 1960, with more than half carrying a dozen or less players for the entire season. Compare that to today's 30 teams carrying a minimum of 15 and giving playing time to a half dozen or more than that. The Chicago Bulls, for example, wound up putting 22 different players on the floor last season. I get why anyone watching clips of yesteryear versus today might conclude that today's players are wildly more athletic. They are. They are. For the reasons that I've stated. What they're not taking into account, though, is that players in previous eras were also much older. Today's players are younger than they've ever been in the league. And that's not because they've matured faster or that they are physically equal to the players in past generations. It's because the demands of the game are different. The selection of talent is different. The picking players for potential. There was no development in Kuzi's day. There was no development in Magic Johnson's day. You signed a player to the team because they needed to fill a role today, not tomorrow, not next year. 
It was also a more cerebral game than it is today. And that's not the fault of today's players. It's just a fact. But it's one of the many things that have changed over the decades. Most of what has changed has advanced the game in a variety of ways or expanded on it. Not all, but most. But let's just leave it at this. Let's stop comparing eras as a way of diminishing the past or insulting those who came before us. I would no more criticize the car my dad drove when I was a kid and point out how it was inferior to the car that I drive today. Of course, today's car is advanced. It has the advantages of technology and time and added knowledge. But the car I get to drive today would not be the car that it is without the car that my dad drove in his time. And that has to be recognized. And once that recognized, then all the other debate is just superfluous. That's where we need to get to when it comes to the NBA, especially those who have or are playing in it. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Speaking of Draymond Green, he recently said in his podcast that he believes he deserves a max extension. Does he? That's one of the questions I will answer in the next episode. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.